I always like to say that the best ideas come from the bottom of a spreadsheet. When you're trying to solve a difficult problem for a client and you think to yourself like, all right, there has to be a better way to do this. Can we build a tool that does this? Can we build a feature that does this? So even myself personally, I still spend quite a bit of time working with clients and understanding their problems. We never want to drift too far away from the day to day because that's where we get the best ideas. Hey, it's Adam Schoenfeld. Welcome back to the Built in Seattle podcast, where Seattle's top entrepreneurs, investors, and leaders share their stories and their lessons from behind the scenes. If you like this show, you might also like my personal newsletter. Each week, I share a lesson, a question, or an idea that I've picked up while learning from others. Subscribe at adaminseattle.com. On this episode, I talked with Michael Lagoni. He's the CEO at Stackline. They were founded in 2013 and bootstrapped the business to tens of millions in ARR. Then while they were profitable in late 2020 and growing, they raised 50 million from Goldman Sachs. It's a unique path. And Michael talked about how he was able to grow so much with no funding, how living on the front lines helped him build trust with his team and how he's starting to think in bigger bets. I hope you enjoy the conversation. I'm here with the one, the only Michael Lagoni. Hey, Michael, welcome to the podcast. Hi, how's it going? Thanks for having me. I've been a fan of yours since reading up on Stackline and uh, and learning about the backstory. And it's interesting because you did this crazy thing and you got profitable with some real scale before ever raising a penny. So I wanted to just ask you about that backstory before maybe people might have seen in the news the $50 million Series A, which is a very outsized Series A. But what was the five years, six years before that like? Well, the company started as a very small idea. I had worked at Amazon originally. That's what brought me out here to Seattle about eight or nine years ago. And back then I could see the opportunity that even though e-commerce was very small at that time, you could see that it was going to grow to become quite large and really reshape all of retail and even media and advertising. So I thought, this sounds like a great area to start a company. I had been hunting for an opportunity to build a new business. And so had the idea to form Stackline and decided to start the company with $300 in this 400 square foot apartment in Seattle's Capitol Hill neighborhood. And in the very beginning, I knew I wanted to build some really bold enterprise SaaS products, unlike anything the industry had ever seen before. But I also was realistic with myself. Privately, I knew that maybe there was a low chance we would have actually being able to get that technology to work and to scale. So rather than going out and raising money from big, you know, institutional investors and things in the very beginning, I felt like the safest thing to do is to bootstrap the business, fund it myself and fund it through services and get working with consumer brands in real time, generating service revenue that we could then use to really fund the company. And so on the very first day when I started in this little apartment, I just picked up the phone and started calling some of our target customers. So we wanted to work with mid-sized brands at the time. So reached out to a handful and said, hey, look, I know e-commerce really well. And I think I can help your business as you're selling through these big online retailers like Amazon and walmart.com and many others. And I explained to them, I said, look, we don't have the software right now. We're going to build it in the years ahead. But for the time being, I can crunch the numbers manually for you in Excel and deliver the insights in PowerPoint and very much like a small, you know, boutique consulting business. And so on the first day, we literally signed up some mid-sized brands and we were profitable by the end of the first day. And that's essentially how we formed this profitable big, uh, business from the very, very beginning and we're able to bootstrap. 
And, and when you say we, you mean you in your apartment in Capitol Hill with $300 <laughs> in the business? Yes, yes. It's funny you mentioned that because even in that, those first months when it was just me in this tiny little apartment, I would refer to the company as we. There was a bigger team of people behind me, but even though it was just me, and it's funny, my wife would come home from work and I would talk about the company saying, oh, we did this and we did that, even though, again, it was just me, this one person. Yeah, I got familiar with using that type of language even back then. So how many calls did you have to make before you got somebody to sign up for this sort of consulting arrangement with the promise of we're going to build software that you'll need? Oh, gosh. What's fascinating is the first few kind of calls I made all became customers. They all signed up, Hmm. which I was really surprised. I think that at that time, e-commerce was just beginning to take shape as an industry. And every brand was looking for experts who knew this industry really well and who knew the best practices and who knew how to operate and could help them, you know, build a better strategy and and execute a a more robust business plan. And so I think I just had the right timing where I was probably the first person to ever call brands (laughs) and say, look, I'm here to help you with this really challenging part of your business today. And yeah, we had a really high hit rate, which certainly gave us some confidence in the very beginning. So how long before you started actually building the software or when did it become a software company? Oh, it took a few years. It really did. I mean, it, we ran that services business purely. We were a services company for the first two to three years. And in the background, we had hired a couple of software engineers who were building the initial versions of the products, but it did take some time before we brought those to market. So if you think about our company history, there's really two chapters. There's the first chapter which is the first few years where it was just a few people running a boutique e-commerce consulting firm and then a little R&D laboratory in the background (laughs) trying to build these first software products. That's what the company looked like for the first few years. And then at about our midpoint in our history, we launched our products. And that's really where the company began to commercialize and grow in a whole new way. But what's fascinating is In that early period, because people will often ask me, why didn't you raise money from some of the big venture capital firms? And really, it's because I wasn't quite sure if we could get the technology to work or not back then. We were building it and doing a lot of R&D, and we just weren't sure if we were able to bring those products to market. And so we loved the fact that we were able to finance the company through our own service revenue, because that was much lower risk capital to use. And then also this other hidden benefit is... On day one, we were live working with a handful of these really great brands. And in real time, they were giving us feedback on how we were crunching the numbers, how we were presenting the analyses and insights and findings. And so we were able to get real-time feedback from that consulting business that we then fed into the product designs. And so I think by the time we launched the products, those products were set up for success because we had so much of that feedback in real time. And so that ended up being the, the real magic element to the product success, I think. Yeah, it sounds like, amazing though, what you did, just picking up the phone and, and like just one by one, getting the customers lined up and before the product and what a great feat. I know how hard that is. Oh, I know, man. Yeah, it was terrifying at the time though. That's for, I, I'm sure you can relate, but especially that first year when I was in that little apartment, we had no investors, right? And then no other employees, very few customers. It was a pretty scary first year. You had that thing in Forbes, you said every leader will need to find something that can sustain them through a lot of uncertainty and ambiguity for a very long time. 
And I believe your answer was it was fear for you in the early days. Is that right? Yeah, definitely fear. I was just so scared it wasn't going to work. And yeah, so much has changed. But looking back at every stage, I, I didn't think it was going to work. I never thought we were going to hit that next milestone. And But that fear of failure is why I would just jump out of bed early in the morning and work tirelessly seven days yeah. a week as I thought for sure it was all going to come crashing down. But Let's replace the fear now. What is the, the motivating force? It has changed. I don't feel that way anymore. Thank God. The company is, I would say over the past few years has gotten to a stage where I'm like, okay, we have enough momentum now. We're good. What's funny is there was this day, we probably had like maybe 30 employees at the time. We were in this little we work down the street. We were all in one room. And I was like walking into the office one day. It's like a Friday afternoon. I walk in, there's 25 people. And everyone has their heads down and they're like pounding away on their keyboard. I looked at these amazing people who are all super talented, right? Like these people could work at any company in the world. They had come to join our company from places like Amazon and Google and Harvard University and all these great places. And I, there was this moment where I stared at them and I was like, wow, these people chose to come work here and join me on this crazy adventure. And this moment hit me where I was like, I need to make sure that this is a big success for these people. Like they are investing the best years of their career in this venture. And just this like pressure, this kind of like responsibility just kind of like fell on my shoulders. I feel like that was the day it could change. If I had to pick a point in time where I no longer was afraid of like failure, but it was more like, now I have this pressure where I need to make sure that this is a big success for these people who have joined the mm. company and they're like working so hard and yeah, just pouring their heart into this thing in the best years of their career and the prime of their career. And I, that's what is so motivating to me right now is I just, I really want this to be a big outcome for them. And yeah, I still work just as hard as ever, but the motivation's like completely different now. <laughs> yeah. No, it sounds, I don't know if I'm saying it back, but it sounds like it went from this survival driving force to almost a sense of duty. Yeah. But, that's exactly grounded right. in the people, right? Like that sort of relationship. Well, you talked about the relationships of the team and yeah, that's it's incredible. Like they all made a huge bet on you and coming in. And and yeah. now I know you have a real business because there's no way Goldman's dumping 50 million in unless you have the market and the growth and the metrics and the people. But yeah, I'm sure it wasn't. People see the fundraising headline and don't realize that it wasn't always that way. Yeah, there's a lot that goes into that. If you look at like the About Us page, those the people on our leadership team, they've been with us since the early days. And when they joined, things were not as pretty. Things were not as like successful back then. Times were hard throughout. And yeah, I just feel like I owe so much to these people now for grueling it out over the years with us. It's interesting because you look at the traditional path of a SaaS business and somebody with a, a good background in the space like yourself, you'd raise a pre-seed and you wouldn't have anything at that point. And then you'd maybe raise a seed when you have maybe a customer or two, and then you'd probably go raise an A when you get to a couple million of ARR, and then you'd go triple, double if all is going well, and you get the B, C, and D. And you, it seems like you just like compressed all those steps and used the service business to like skip a lot of that. Yeah, I think there were a lot of great advantages to having that service business on day one, the, the financial benefits of it, but also, yeah, the live day-to-day -day interaction with these brands mm -hmm. is so invaluable. It's hard to put a number on that, but it does force you to deliver value right up front and think of creative ways of creating value for your clients. And all of that is just so important to designing a really successful enterprise product. Those things I didn't predict in the beginning, in hindsight, I look back and think that made such a big difference for us. Now, there's a good number of case studies of people like myself who have built bootstrap businesses to five, 10 people and a couple million of, of ARR. But you had some real scale. If I got the numbers, in fact, check me here, but it looked like you had 70 or 80 people in the working in the company by the time you raised that first round. 
Can you talk a little bit about how far you were able to go without having to go to the venture route and like how much scale were you able to get in the business? Yeah, definitely. So over the years, we did grow the business quite a bit. And by the time we brought on Goldman Sachs and their private equity group back in November of 2020, at that time, I believe we had about 80 to 85 employees and we worked with over 2000 consumer brands, some of the biggest brands in the world. And so we did have quite a bit of scale and the company continues to very fortunately be um, profitable. And our plan up until we brought on Goldman Sachs as a partner is we wanted to actually bootstrap the business all the way to the IPO. That was the dream. As the company got bigger, we started to look out ahead and we realized that we're entering this pre-IPO phase of, okay, over the next two to four years, we probably need to make sure that we have the right team in place, the right board members, the right internal infrastructure, if we are going to hit a much, much bigger milestone over the next few years. And we had gotten to know the team at Goldman Sachs over the past couple of years and built a lot of you know trust and, and confidence in them. And they're really experts in, in doing just that, working with companies at our size and then helping them grow to that next big milestone. And I really looked at the opportunity of working with them and thought, okay, they can be the team that comes in and really helps us bring on the right talent, put the right infrastructure in place internally to make sure that we can hit that next milestone with ease. Yeah, that was a big driving factor behind uh, that partnership. Yeah. Can you give, I don't know if this is stuff you share publicly, but can you share order of magnitude? Like when you were there with 2000 customers before the round, are we talking north of 10 million of ARR? Like, was it that, that far? Because you had a pretty big expense base, obviously with maybe 80 or 90 people, but is there anything you can share to give people a sense for how big you got in revenue? Yeah, yeah, certainly. We don't share the exact financials, but yeah, multiples larger than that. And uh, the company is growing above 50% per year. And we still maintain like very strong EBITDA margins and everything. Yeah. So our real goal that we're after though, I would say the number that we all think about and talk about every day is we want to get to 100 million in annual recurring revenue as fast as we possibly can. I think it's going to take us a couple more years to get there, but I think we have all the right pieces in place. We just have to make sure that we continue to keep recruiting great talent and building building new products, building new services and new businesses. That's really what we're focused on every day. What's Since there are so few role models in this of companies that have like really gone alone bootstrapping, I think of maybe Atlassian or maybe yeah. MailChimp, but it's not a lot that have gotten to tens of millions. And then certainly if you think of hundreds of millions of recurring revenue, it's like a very small list. Did you struggle to find role models? And how did you find people to talk to about like your specific path and how you went about building the business in those earlier phases? Yeah, I think that's a great point. It's a small market of people who like yourself have bootstrapped successful tech companies. It's definitely not the norm today. But yeah, there's a handful of people that I would always kind of look up to. Ryan Smith, the founder of Qualtrics, I think is also a really great example. In addition to the list that you mentioned, they recently went public, but in, for many years, so that team bootstrapped that business and they really redefined a whole category. And so we often would look at them as a great example that we wanted to follow. That's right. Yeah. They went really far without a lot of capital. Yeah, I think too. Maybe their first like seven or eight years. Mm-hmm. So I was in my background on you, I read a, a great interview you did with Forbes and you said, I see our company as part of an alternate ideology, one that prioritized self-funded innovation and profitable growth. What I tell young founders and CEOs is that approach requires a huge amount of grit. Can you unpack that a little bit more and the principle around grit and resilience that seems to be present for you and how you've built the business? Yeah, gosh, there's so many stories I could probably tell. 
it's funny, we have these company principles that our team voted on and developed, kind of the characteristics that we look for in teammates. And so we now have had them as part of our company values and principles that we train all new hires on. And one of the um, values is, is grit. And uh, that's probably the fan favorite. I think if you surveyed every employee here and said, what's your favorite company principle? Grit would probably get the most votes. It's such an important part of our company history. And I think probably of any startup that grows to become successful, really, you have to be very gritty. One example I like to tell that really highlights this is in those early years where we were running this very small consulting business, but had engineers in the background building products, we had built up this book of clients. And every week, I had to run their analytics for them, showing their sales, their inventory, their margins, all their KPIs for their business. The list of clients was growing and I had built this massive network of Excel models to compute all these metrics. And it would take me about 72 hours to kick off every week to run the reports for these clients. So I would get up early on Sunday morning and I really wouldn't finish until about Tuesday night. And after doing that for a while, I developed really severe carpal tunnel in my right arm because I was just like cranking through so much just volumes of work on my laptop. The carpal tunnel in my right arm got so bad, I had to wear a cast on my arm. I couldn't even hold a cup of coffee just from working so strenuously for so long. And I had to teach myself how to just use a keyboard with my left hand or use a mouse with my left hand. So picture me in this tiny little office we had at the time the cast on my right arm, struggling to do these reports for clients, manual reports for clients with, with a left-handed mouse. And I'm, I'm fumbling through it. And one of our engineers walks over to me one day. He was brand new to the company. His name is Raj. He's our CTO. He walks over to me and he says, what happened to your right arm? And I said, well, I'm just, I'm doing so many reports for our clients through the consulting business and I can't keep up with the volume. And so I've literally damaged the tendons and ligaments in my right arm. And he said, show me the reports you're making. So I walk him through, I give him a little tutorial of these big Excel models I had built. And he says, I think I can help you. And in two days, he built a product that automated all of that reporting and presented it in this beautiful dashboard to our clients. And that became one of our most popular products. It's called Beacon. And it's still one of our most popular products today. Thousands of brands in the industry use it to measure their performance. And literally the whole idea of building that product came from my carpal tunnel and, and that gritty work ethic of trying to power through these reports manually for clients. And there's so many great examples like that in our company history. And I think that's just the um, type of work ethic I think that you have to have as a founder. You have to be willing to work that hard to, to bootstrap a business. But also I think the, the silver lining of that is sometimes the big opportunities are right in front of you and you don't really think about it until another colleague comes up to you and says, let's do this a different way. Let's do this a better way. And that ended up transforming the whole business and saved my right arm, which is great. Like the moral of the story is don't go to the point where you have to wear a cast. Yeah. But, <laughs> yes. but there is something, yeah, there is something to that of everybody witnessing that and the whole cycle of it. I'm curious, in addition to stories like that, how do you maintain that as the company's growing? That that grit and that sort of resilience or relentless relentlessness that sounds like it was a big part of your character and the character of the company early on being bootstrapped and having to fight for every dollar. Yeah, I think it's such an important element to maintain as a part of our company culture, even as we get bigger. I think we do it in a few ways. First is Every new employee that joins the company, we, we have these sessions where we talk about the company history and our values and principles, and we tell a bunch of colorful stories like that to show them like where we're from. I think that helps. But then also 
so many of those early employees back when the company was more in that early startup stage are now executives in the company today. And those people have gotten promoted and they help run different divisions and different departments. So I think that history is very much embedded across the company. That certainly helps. But then I think we live it every day still. All of the the key members of the team still spend a, a huge amount of their time working with clients, working on projects. I always like to say that the best ideas come from the bottom of a spreadsheet. When you're trying to solve a difficult problem for a client and you think to yourself like, all right, there has to be a better way to do this. Can we build a tool that does this? Can we build a feature that does this? So even myself personally, I still spend quite a bit of time working with clients and understanding their problems. We never want to drift too far away from the day-to-day because that's where we get the best ideas for for the next big innovation. Yeah, I love that. And I'm, I'm curious to hear more about the execs coming from the early employees because it seems in a lot of startups that your senior leadership team and your executives will be hired from the outside of people who have seen the movie before of the next phase of growth. Was that something that you cultivated earlier? How did that come to be in the case of Stackline? How did it happen that you had early employees who were able to scale with the business? I think we were just so incredibly fortunate at the time in the, in, in those earlier years, we were simply just hunting and hunting for kind of the most talented people we could find to join us. And I think we got really lucky that so many of those early teammates who decided to make a huge bet and join our little company at that time, those people ended up being such a wonderful fit for our team, our culture, and they've continued to grow. We've all had to grow, all of us, including myself. Managing a company of three or four people is very different than managing a company of like over a hundred people now that we have. And so I think that has helped solidify the bond across our leadership team as well as the fact that we've all had to learn and evolve and grow together. But we all have such trust and confidence in each other now. And we all are willing to share best practices and ideas about how do we keep scaling our respective parts of the company. And so that history that we have together and that solidarity that we have, I think, is such a valuable asset that will help ensure the team's team's chemistry going forward, too. Is that history, that trust, that sort of bond something that you've had to prove to your investors as any advisors has anybody come in and said oh hey you need to bring in this brand name cxo and don't promote this person who ran the function for the last five years is that something that you've had to justify or stand behind or has it been as natural as it sounds talking about it now no i think probably initially when you know a new outside partner might get to know us they might think that, I think they have that assumption that, okay, they're just not sure what the leadership team is quite like. But the more time that they spend with our team, I think you can quickly see the chemistry and the strength of the relationships across the team. And I think also that helps with just coordination managing a business that's growing and changing all the time and managing and growing the core business and core products, but at the same time, inventing new businesses, inventing new products there requires just such a great amount of coordination and trust in one another. And those relationships that we have across the executive team are so valuable because we know the the strengths of every member of the team. And so you know, all right, if there's this problem to be solved, who is the best person to work on it? We just know each other so well. And I think that increases the success rate um, of our kind of overall company solving hard problems that are out ahead of us. When you're talking to other entrepreneurs or, or leaders, and they're like, hey, in five, 10 years, I want what you have. I want the trust and chemistry that you're describing. Is there any way that that you advise people to cultivate that 
from the onset, knowing now what having played it out over the last several years? Yeah, I would say I knew nothing about it in the beginning. And everything that we've learned, we've just learned organically over the years. It's such a great question now, I think. If I had to give advice on that, I think the key for us is honestly just the honesty and transparency that we all share. I think because we know each other so well and there's so much history and we've gone through so many ups and downs together as a team, that we are just unbelievably transparent and honest. And that I think is a critical factor to making sure that you've got the right people on the team and people aren't holding back ideas or they're afraid to share some new idea or some feedback on a product. Or it's not uncommon for me to work on like a new product or a new feature and other people on the leadership team to look at it and say, oh, we don't think that's going to quite meet the goal we're after. And I'm okay with that. And everyone else is too. We're just so honest with there's so much trust amongst our team that people share their best ideas and share feedback in real time. And that's really the pressure you need to make sure you're delivering very valuable products to the market. You're killing me here because you're telling me there's no silver bullets or uh, magical <laughs> ways to just manufacture these things. So no, but yeah. it, it makes sense. And so much of your approach has been this kind of evolutionary organic thing that you've built. Um, with the people in the business. But okay, I guess you actually have to, you know, build trust and relationships and time. (laughs) So you have this alternate ideology that's founded on grit and being relentless and really focusing on your customers. And you went a long time without raising money. Then you raised a really big round. And so what's changed about your ideology since doing that or about the way that you operate? I would say the biggest change for us, there's really two um, areas. First is... The Goldman Sachs team, they've joined our board of directors and we're building out a bigger board. And that has been just invaluable. The advice and wisdom and guidance that those teammates have been able to provide to us as we continue to scale and grow a bigger enterprise has just been incredible. The value that that we've been able to capture from that, I think, has been just such a huge asset for our team. The other area is bringing on Goldman Sachs and all the resources that they have brought to our team, I think give us the confidence to make some even bigger and bolder bets. As you can imagine, when you're bootstrapping a company or when you're funding a company yourself for for many years, there's a level of conservatism that you have to maintain within the company. And because you have to ensure that every new product you build or every new service you build, it has to generate positive cash flow pretty quickly. And I think bringing on Goldman Sachs has enabled us to think bigger. Our ambitions have really grown. And you'll probably see our company really make some much bigger and bolder bets on net new innovations that will really be one of a kind in the industry. But it takes a bit more resources and a bit more boldness to bring things like that to market. And that is another really important element of of bringing on a partner like them. What's been uncomfortable about that coming from your roots to now, you know, thinking about placing some bigger, bolder bets? That's such a great question. There really hasn't been anything that I would say has been uncomfortable other than, so I think everyone is is very excited about maybe this change that's occurring in our company right now and these new adventures were all going on. But the big difference is realizing that in the past, we had to make smaller bets and ensure that those bets turned out to be very fruitful. But now moving forward, we're able to make bigger bets and, and really invest in much bolder innovations that are, are really one of a kind in the industry. And 
as you move more in that direction in any company that's making bold innovations, they're not always going to work with a 100% success rate. You have to be willing to take multiple swings of the ball if you're swinging for, the, for, for a home run. And that's something that I think we're going to all have to get more comfortable with. I don't think we're uncomfortable with it, but it's something that we haven't experienced before. And in the past, pretty much every new product or every new service we've invented has been successful in the short term. And now with much bigger, bolder innovations, that might not always be true. We might have a couple of big bets that don't end up working out and that's okay. That's something we have to make sure that we're all comfortable with. And that's just in the spirit of any type of invention. Yeah. Is there anything you've had to unlearn in that process or any new muscle you've had to build? Not quite yet. Maybe a year from now, if we do this podcast, I'll I'll have some examples to share, but not yet. It's still pretty early innings. How do you balance that internally, that sort of uh, mix between... I don't know if exploitation versus exploration is the right flip or innovation versus incrementalism, but the people that have to be taking the spreadsheet and turning it into the next feature that's more of a known versus the people going out into uncharted waters, has there been any tension in managing that or dividing people up across those different problem spaces or how have you uh, approached that now that you're able to spread out a little bit more? Yeah, it's such a great balance that I think every company has to be able to juggle, which is, all right, how do you continue to grow and nurture your core business and your your existing product portfolio that's in market? And at the same time, carve out resources for net new innovations. And so it is a bit of a, a balancing act. And how we have approached it is we just have separate teams. We have felt like if we take a couple of really key people and have them 100% dedicated to working on this net new innovation, and they're not distracted by the other you know, work streams happening day to day in the workplace, and they're not distracted by the current maintenance of, of existing products and things like that, if they can completely 100% focus on like a new innovation, that's where you'll have the best chances for success and you can bring things to market a little bit faster. So that's essentially how we've decided to organize the company. And so far that has been working pretty well, but uh, we'll see how it goes. How do you do that with your own attention and energy? It's funny you ask that because just in the past few months, I have had to physically separate my time on my calendar. And you've probably heard about these calendar audits that people will do where maybe one of your board members will ask you like, all right, what are your top three priorities? And you would often say something like, oh, recruiting key executive or working on this new product or new innovation and maybe something else. And then your board member would say, great, pull up your Outlook calendar. I want to see what's on your schedule for the week. And almost always you have none of those things on your calendar. And so I started doing these calendar audits where I would compare how much time am I allocating each week to my top three to five priorities. And I found that imbalance was definitely there where I really didn't have enough time carved out each week to work on these top priorities. So what I started doing is dividing my calendar where there's certain days in the week where I will work on existing products and existing parts of our business. And then other days of the week where I work on the net new innovations. I literally will separate my calendar to ensure I have that focus. And I have found that has just been incredibly beneficial. I can focus a lot more on the problem I'm trying to solve that day. And I think that both parts get much better kind of energy and effort. Have you still been pulled into putting your hands on the keyboard and client deliverables and hopefully not to the point of carpal tunnel, but are you still present in the front lines with those customers that, you know, as you were in the early days? Oh, definitely. Yeah. That's where I get the best ideas. I was working with clients and 
Either it's me behind the scenes, crunching the numbers and trying to find the real important pieces of value. But then, yeah, sometimes clients are surprised to hop on a Zoom call and they see that the CEO is there to present the analysis to them. (laughs) And they're like, wow, we didn't realize you were the one doing the analysis uh, behind the scenes. And so I get a lot of enjoyment out of that. I love working with customers in real time and hearing their thoughts. And I get a lot of energy from that. So yeah, a a portion of my calendar each week is carved out specifically to work on on those types of things. Okay. So that's one of the blocks that you actually have. Yeah, that is. Because I've always felt like if if I drift too far into manager land, and drift too far away from the day-to-day work that's actually happening and the work our clients are doing, I'll lose touch. And I just don't ever want to lose that like closeness that I have to the day-to-day. And I'm just obsessed with still like living the life that our customers live or that, that our consultants live and ensuring that I can still see where are things headed? What, what's the next big innovation around the corner? And every product idea we've ever had or every big feature has come from doing that type of work. And yeah, a portion of my week is still spent working on projects like that. And do you hold your team accountable to behave in a similar way? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Do you ever recruit executives from big companies and you tell them about this and they just exit the interview? Quickly or what happened? Is that a, is that a gate or a filter in your hiring? It definitely is. Yeah. It's something we talk about in the interview process and we can usually read someone's face. Are they really energized by hearing this story or are they terrified? And that usually is, is a good point to decide if they want to continue with the interview or not. It seems to really tie in with sort of the grid and the way that you've built the business. And it sounds like it's working for you. Is there anything else we should cover before I do that? I want to make sure to get you out on time. So let's, let's wrap this up with the supersonic six. Number one, how much coffee do you drink? Just two cups a day, one after breakfast and one after lunch, always Starbucks. (laughs) Uh, Number two, what's one other Seattle company that you're following or studying right now? One of the Seattle companies I'm really following, they're not originally from Seattle, but it's Qualtrics. I know they're based in Utah, but they're opening a huge office here in Seattle. And I know that they have some really exciting expansion plans as well. So we're, we always have appreciated that company because of their origin story and how they built their business. And so that's one I'm excited to watch continue to be very successful here. Great. Um, And so I'm really excited to see what he's going to do with Amazon the next five to 10 years. Number three, who's one Seattle person that you're following or learning from right now? It would be hard to not say Amazon, especially with Andy Jassy being appointed as the next CEO. I'm just really excited to see what he's going to do with the company and going way, way back to the origin story. Andy is an alum of my school where I went to graduate school and he came and spoke while I was a student in this huge auditorium with a couple hundred students all listening to his story. And I thought it was just so fascinating. And so at the end of his presentation, the auditorium cleared out and Andy was standing by the podium down front by himself. And so I thought, this is a great opportunity. I want to go meet him. So I walked down and I had a really long conversation with Andy. And that's actually what led to me taking the job at Amazon is from that conversation. Number four, what's one thing that Seattle needs to improve as a startup hub? I have found Seattle to be such an incredible place to to be a founder and a place to start a company. When I was evaluating the cities where I wanted to get this company started, I really narrowed it down to either the Bay Area or Seattle. And I ultimately landed on Seattle because I felt like this is really the capital of e-commerce on a worldwide scale. And I think because of Amazon's success and Microsoft's success, but even companies like 
you know, Tableau bringing a huge pool of analytics talent. Seattle has all of the ingredients to be a very kind of fertile ground for, for startups. And I've just been so happy with the, the resources we've had here. And I look forward to a time in the future once we get past COVID when we can begin to have more events in person and things like that again. Number five, what's one piece of advice you'd give your 20-year-old self? I wish I would have started Stackline sooner. Yeah, if I could go back in time as a 20-year-old, I, w- I would have started Stackline at that time and just gotten the company going about seven years earlier than I did. Number six, what can this community do to help you? I know you have a lot of open jobs. Are there things that you want people to pay attention to or any calls to action that you have for listeners? I think the biggest priority would be, yeah, recruiting. As our company is continuing to grow, we're looking for other really ambitious and talented people to join the team and help us scale our existing business and start new businesses. That's really the key priority for us. And how many people are working in the company today? I believe there are just over 100. We we crossed 100 last week. So we're at about 101 or 102 now. And it looked like a ton of open roles. So how big do you expect to be by end of 21? By the end of this year, we'll probably be closer to 150 or 160 people. Lots of places to to look for for jobs at Stackline. Very cool. Michael, this has been great. I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed getting to hear the story and getting to meet you. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Hey, it's Adam again. Quick note before you go. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you're enjoying the show as much as I am enjoying making it. If you do like it, please leave a rating or a review. That would help other people find it in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And if you have any feedback, send me an email, adamseattlepodcast at gmail.com. No underscores, no periods, just adamseattlepodcast at gmail.com.